0: Listener
1: Production. You are listening to Episode 17 of the Howie Games Artist Series Part B featuring a rock star, rock and roll god, Bernard Fanning. Play. Talk to me about crazy. When things start to get rolling, talk to me about crazy.
0: Uh, I mean, we were never a very hedonistic kind of band anyway. I mean, we, you know, obviously drank our fair share and consumed lots of um variable consumables Mm -hmm. uh and i mean we were just we were more of a weed band than anything but i mean once once uh you know odyssey number five internationalist odyssey number five and vulture street were all big records and they just kept getting consecutively bigger and the band kept getting more popular and the shows were bigger and all that sort of stuff to the point where – Well, you went
1: five number ones in a row, didn't you? Like five albums in a row, uh, number one on the RE
0: charts. I, I don't know. Probably. No, you did. Maybe. So you
1: just, you just went Bang Bang, Internationalist, Odyssey number five, Vulture Street, and you just get yeah. rolling.
0: Yeah. So as those shows got bigger, obviously you start I started to be recognised and that sort of stuff. So that was not something that I enjoyed at all. I was – It was pretty 90s, the whole thing. You know, everyone was all kind of with their cardigan pulled tightly to their chest, you know, being a tortured artist kind of thing. Um, But then once, once uh, after Odyssey number five, and we were touring, you know, we were going all over the world doing shows, and um, we got a release in America and went and toured over there right before with Coldplay, actually. When we finished that, Big day out with Coldplay and then they they invited us to come and support them in America. Hmm. And so we went and did that, and then on the back of that we got signed um over there, went back, did kind of a what is called a set up tour, I guess, which was playing to, you know, maybe a thousand people in each city, and that was all going really well. That was I think July two thousand and one. And we were due to go back in November and then September 11 happened Uh, and everything just went away really fast. And by then, I think by the time it was kind of ready to go back there and things were, you know, gigs were starting to open up and all that sort of stuff again, we were already into a new record. We were making a new record and we were just like, ah, whatever. And, And to be honest, we didn't have a great experience in America. We didn't. Like the, we weren't comfortable with the kind of the the idea that you were being constantly exalted by people, and that 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 kind of culture of praise and all that sort of stuff. We were too kind of falsely modest, I guess, at the time to accept it.
1: That's a real including strategy. the record
0: label and all that sort of stuff. You know, like people from the label telling us we were going to be the biggest band in the world and all this stuff, and. And we ended up saying to one guy, which was probably a mistake, he ended up being a pretty important guy. We were like, "Hey, man, you're speaking out of your ass. can you just <laughs> like can you just calm down with this stuff because we're not we're not into it, you know we don't really want to hear it. It's not interesting or important to us. We're just trying to do our thing so when you are when you are getting to that stage,
1: yeah, two questions about that um what what did you learn about?" Fame and and how do you keep? Do you, do you change? Are you the, still the same blokes that are doing the road trip from Brisbane to to Melbourne, or does fame eat its way into your existence? It
0: it does it does have an effect on people. I think um, we we always tried to uh, downplay it as much as possible, but on the day to day level of going to Woolies and signing an autograph that that was different you know yeah um and I wasn't particularly happy with that I'm I'm totally comfortable with it now I I used to I think I used to be embarrassed that that people were making a big deal about it so but it's just a showing of appreciation yeah that's I mean and and I've come to appreciate that totally now but yeah at the time I wasn't I guess I wasn't that comfortable in my own skin. So I, I used to try and avoid that quite a bit. Um, And when all of the kind of, all of that bigger success started to happen, I moved out of the city, I moved out to Acreage out of the city. So with my partner at the time and built a studio downstairs so that I could just make more music that was, that was kind of all I wanted to do, and and go on the road when, when um, whenever that was happening. So, I kind of wasn't particularly social in the music scene or anything like that. I mean, I had a lot of friends, and I still do, but yep. it, I just wasn't going to gigs a few times a week or anything like that. Like, and when you are on the road, yeah, and like I, I live an hour and
1: twenty five minutes out of Melbourne. So I, I, on the way up today, I whacked on Spotify, and I just. Typed in Powderfinger's greatest hits. Yeah, and the whole way I knew every song, and I found myself knowing just about every word, to every song. And I hope somewhere
0: that filters down into your bank account somewhere. I don't really <laughs> know how Spotify does. That get to you eventually? Oh, mate, if you I think if you play this play a song a thousand times, I'll end up with a cent that I'll share. Okay. I'll share six ways with the Powderfinger guys. And, <laughs> right, and, and, well, and well and it was and running Spotify's going, <laughs> going all right then? So
1: and and it hit me. Wow, I know. Every single one of these songs, and I know the majority of the words to these songs. And it's without, it, it's just osmosis. So, so when you're at your height, when you are the biggest band in Australia, and people are talking about you being an enormous band overseas, and you're up on stage, and people are going off their head and they're singing the lyrics to your songs, and you're up there as the front man, like the true definition of a rock star. Is it everything? us mere mortals picture in our mind? Like what is that like? And I see you smiling, which makes me think it is.
0: Well, there's elements to it that are, that are great, but it's, but it's also I think I've got a pretty utilitarian kind of approach to gigs where, I mean, I'm not a, a, like a super talent as a musician for starters, right? So I, I need to concentrate on what I'm doing to be able to do it well. And I was always really aware of that, that um, concentrating and being focused and listening to what's happening with the band.
1: So you're not doing a Chuck Berry dance while you're playing guitar in the dark type of
0: material? No, no, not that much.
1: (laughs) You're trying to get your fingers on the right bar
0: chord. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, look, I don't want to downplay it too much. It's... It's an incredible experience and a, and a great feeling having people what, what singing your like? songs back to you. You know that. What, what,
1: what does it feel like?
0: I don't know. It just feels like my life, I guess, that's which a is answer. pretty it's weird. A great answer. A great I, I don't answer. know. I, don't, I I can't explain what it feels like. Um, there's, I mean, but for example, I think. There's there's a lot of myth-making that happens with music as well and with entertainment in general where where people are like, oh, I just the the applause is so important to me and it fills my soul and all this stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, we were talking about this in the car the other day that during the gig the other night that we were playing in Hunter Valley or something, I mean, there's... There's twelve thousand people there. But I was singing and playing a song. But I was wondering whether I'd left the iron on in my apartment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> now that's not rock star, that's worse than the Econovan.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean that's the reality. That's the reality. Yeah. And but that, that's what kind of what I was getting at with concentration as well. You your mind drifts when you're working in any capacity, right? Yeah, it does. And you can't infuse every line that you sing with the most deep meaning that you can possibly, you know, convey. That, for me, happens in the songwriting process. That's why I work really hard on getting the song right so that when you're playing live, you, you can enjoy it more. You don't have to be drilling in on the tiny details. I mean there's the practical details of playing the right chords that everyone else is playing and all that stuff, but I've I've got to say that the older I've got and the more experienced I've got, the more I've enjoyed playing live. as which is kind of atypical. Uh, I think most people tire of it and get get bored with it. Yep. But now I and i think it's probably since i had kids as well that thing of you know enjoying other people's joy seeing how happy it makes people yeah. seeing seeing what it means to them that's that's the thing that's really gratifying you know that you that you ha- you're helping other people
1: how old are your kids
0: uh, 13 and 11 so
1: have they come have they, have they seen this tour do they see their old um, man up there? They haven't seen this tour
0: yet. They're coming in a, in a few weeks, actually. But I mean, they've been before.
1: And, and what do they think of their dad? Like my my kids.
0: Oh, it sounds stupid, but my kids
1: think it's normal that I'm on the telly yeah, talking about cricket well, or foot, Right, it's the right? same for them. It's,
0: it's the same for them. That's what. Right. I've always done. I mean, they weren't. Gab was born in in 2009, so Powderfinger was at its absolute biggest then. Huh. When she was born, so she went on the road. When she was three weeks old, she she went on the big day out.
1: <laughs> she rock and roll baby. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so uh, a bit different for Fred because Powdered Powderfinger had finished by then. Um, but yeah, they they think it's pretty normal. You know, I mean, they know that it's that it's not really typical, but um, the people that they've grown up around. Uh, that's there's, there's lots of musicians and entertainers, so it's, yeah, it's not that crazy for them. The, I think they appreciate it though. But by the same token, you know, they'd much rather put a Harry Styles record on than a than a powder finger record. So I, I, well
1: Harry is pretty cool. He um, is. I went and saw yeah, that no. show actually a few Did weeks you?
0: ago. Yeah, well with the kids, yeah. And it was great.
1: He's awesome. And do you do you look at it So I I'll watch I watch footy and cricket and watch it for the game. I'm not removed enough where I'm thinking about the commentary. Are you watching Harry Styles just loving what he's doing or looking at it thinking, oh, he's done it that way or, oh, that's a good way of doing it.
0: That's kind of the problem, I think, with being a songwriter almost ruins music for you. Does it, yeah. I I can understand that. you're kind of analysing it all the time and, you know, I'm watching Harry Styles and listening to the band and what the bass line's doing and all that stuff instead of just the big spectacle, you know, of just watching this guy making people super happy and yeah. singing songs that you want to whistle all the way home you know yeah so yeah i mean i think most people that get to that kind of i guess it's called expert level where where you can't help but analyze what's going on you know so
1: because I'm not analysing the footy in the cricket commentary, does that mean I'm not at expert we, <laughs> <laughs> I, that hey? <laughs> yeah, I can take that on the chin. What a that was, eh? Yeah, I could take that on the chin. Hey, as I said, I was listening to your, your music on the way up and there was just bloody hit after hit. So I was thinking, I wonder what really resonates. So the simplest way, the, the one question I did want to ask you is, in your mind, the top three powder finger songs that you know will just Electrify the crowd, and I, I know it's not an easy thing to do after all your years of experience. And you, you'd like songs that others yeah, that's love, right. etc. But your tastes but,
0: change. But yeah, we had, what are well, your we, three bangers? We had three that we that we called the Holy Trinity. Um, oh, the Holy Trinity! So
1: there is three. I've got the number right. What's by, the Trinity? This is, this the this end is of, good. The,
0: of the whole shebang. Um, yeah, my happiness. My happiness so these days. On My Mind. There's a three yep. that kind of always had to be played. Well,
1: they're, they're massive songs. Yeah. The, 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 the song I wanted to ask you about is for two reasons, because it's my favourite song that you're is Like a Dog. Yeah. But the second part of it is coming back to the fact that um, this is ostensibly a sports podcast. The film clip is based around... Anthony Mundine, yeah. and it's a ripping film clip. Like you, you said, you wanted to write songs that still you like listening to now. I watched that film clip twice yesterday. Yeah, um, and it's so people need to watch it. Uh, search "Like a Dog" official video, and it's it's Mundine preparing for a fight, and I knew it was him straight away because you see that jaded tattoo yeah, on his right. on his chest. A, a fantastic film clip and boxing. It's possibly the best visual sport to portray because it's just. There's so many yeah. things in a fight. So how did Mundine come to pass? And were you there? Like, were you yeah, were there I at times? The I mean, in the corner. I ended up fighting Yeah, well, that's, that's the thing. You're you're in the corner looking all sort of moody and cool and long hair rock star. And I'm thinking if he's stepping in <laughs> with Mundine, my man Berners has got to cop one of the great hidings in the history of boxing here. It's a great film clip, though. It really, it really is. It is. I
0: think it's probably our best clip, actually. And is it? So yeah. the guys that, that made it, um Scotty and Paul 5050 films were they they were friends of ours in Brisbane and they they made most of our our videos um and they were both sport maniacs and boxing maniacs in particular and we all really liked the film Raging Bull the De Niro oh, film yeah. about Jake LaMotta and um yep. decided to to make it about that i mean the the content of the song was talking about the Political situation in Australia at the time, with yep. with uh, I think that there was a ten point plan that had been proposed by by the Howard government with regard to traditional ownership for Aboriginal people and whatnot. Um, and there was a there was very heavy dispute about what uh, was was the way forward. And they were a conservative government; they were they were going down a very conservative line and. And I was talking about that, I guess, talking about the way Aboriginal tr- people have been treated in Australia forever. Um, hopefully that's on the move. But uh, the, the content of the song was kind of dealing with that. So it was it was kind of overtly political in the first place. In fact, at the time, Triple M wouldn't play it because they were saying it was too political, which was just absolute garbage and really garbage really? from, from them. Um, that was only a temporary reprieve for Triple M from playing Powderfinger songs back to back. Um, yeah, I know it's about yeah, to say. but uh, yeah. So they got in touch with Koda Nasa, who was was yep. Anthony's manager, and yeah, they were all for it. So so we 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 kind of I guess we we're wanting to make a statement as well. But he was a controversial figure, you know. He'd left he left the Dragons. He was. um so he'd started his boxing career. He's, he obviously had the legacy of his dad to deal with, with regard to that. And and um, well, I, I thought he was awesome, and he was an awesome oh. boxer. That guy, like he was, he was just an awesome athlete, a phenomenal athlete. Yeah, but you covered him in the film clip. Like you, you kept up with him uh, in the film <laughs> clip. Surely, surely that was real. Ah uh, no, look, I think look, most of it, most of it was um, the magic of television, man. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know a lot Great about.
1: film clip. Yeah. Great film clip. A quick break from Bernard. If you like your singer songwriting legends, you need to listen to Paul Kelly, who is mentioned by Bernard in this episode. Paul was our very first guest on the Artist Series. He took a leap of faith with us back in September 2021. And what a guest he was. I, I don't know. You can tell me if... Uh Leaps and Bounds is a song about footy. I, I don't know. We'll get to playing it at the MCG. But the start of that song, I'm high on the hill looking over the bridge to the MCG and way up on high the clock on the silo says 11 degrees. As a bloke that spent a lot of time in Melbourne, to me that is Melbourne. That is the most iconic description of Melbourne I think I've ever heard. Like, Where does that come to you? Does that just pop into your head one night?
2: I actually lived on um, Punt Road on a flat with a second floor flat and with the window facing over the river so I could see that. We could see the G from the flat and I could also see the Nilex clock sign. Right. So we're up on the hill and that was the view. Um, so that hmm. was that was sort of the opening lines. I wrote that with my friend Chris Langman who I, I shared a house with and uh, so we, we started that song as a melody without, without too many words. But Leaps and Bounds was part of the chorus right from the start and it was sort of a song... For me, it was a song about nothing, like a bit like Seinfeld. I reckon a song about well, that nothing.
1: worked. It worked for them. Yeah,
2: sort of just a feeling of exhilaration. It was for me. It was an autumn song. I love autumn. It's I think it's my favourite time of year. So it's a song about feelings sort of uplifted and happy for no good reason, I guess.
1: Huh.
2: But yeah, the MCG was in it. So and of course, it works. People have have interpreted as a footy song, which is fine by me. I think songs can be interpreted all sorts of ways. But often if I went to the footy from that flat where we lived, we'd just walk down.
1: So So you'd be high on the hill looking over the bridge to the MCG? Yeah. That's Paul Kelly on Episode 1 of the Artist Series. Go back in the feed to September 2021 and have a listen to Paul. Let's get back to Bernard. Another song I want to ask you about, and this is, much more personal for two people that don't really know each other, but I, I will ask you about Since You've Been Gone. Mm-hmm. You been Since
0: you've been gone
1: Another banging tune, and to me it's a banging tune, but to you I guess it's a, it's a lot more than that if – For those that don't know, if you could explain the background to the song to me and to the audience and also how is it trying to put words down that something's deeply private yet you're releasing it into the public sphere?
0: Yeah. Um, So 2002, early 2002 while we were writing Vulture Street, I guess, um, my eldest brother John who we've been talking about um, died from melanoma. So, and it happened pretty quick. He was 42, diagnosed in August, died in February kind of thing. Uh, all happened really quickly and obviously the whole family is devastated by it. He had two young boys as well that were the same age as my kids now, 12 and 10 or something like that.
1: Jeez.
0: Um, so we were kind of in the middle of writing a record and I'd only ever – written about things that I was seeing or experiencing anyway. So it just, it kind of felt natural to me to write about it. And I probably wasn't every, I mean, when somebody that close to you dies, it's so raw, you know, you, Mm. you just, you're kind of clutching at anything. And for me, writing songs was the, the thing that helped me make sense of whatever I was feeling and whatnot. So yeah, I wrote that song. Well, that song was, It went through a few different permutations, but the final lyric anyway was, was, um, I think I put it, I put it together, actually the final lyric in the studio. And I remember during the Vulture Street sessions, I had to fly home for the first anniversary of Johnny's death, actually to go and hang with the family and do all that stuff. and so I was writing that song, writing the lyrics to that song, I should say, the, the whole band wrote that the music to that um, while we were in the studio. Yep. But in terms of putting it out in the public and having people know what you're thinking or feeling, I mean, that's the idea. That's the whole point. And, and in our family, we were very open with, Johnny's death, we, t- we talked about him constantly. We, you know, driving around trying to get a park, he'd be like, can you try and find me a park? You know, <laughs> <laughs> all of that stuff, all the old, the old Catholic hangovers. Wow. Um, so it didn't feel to me like I was kind of doing anything that was exposing myself too much or, okay. or anything like that. I did end up having to talk about it a lot when we did the press. Yep. Which I probably hadn't really thought of, but it didn't it didn't um, bug me too much. And and a lot of people have talked to me about that song and a couple of other songs that I've written about that situation, I guess, um, and have said that it really helped them. So that's that's the really important thing about it. And you know, you can you can write songs about. Grief or about love or about politics or whatever. And they have this kind of exorcism element to them, I guess, especially things like grief. But at the end of the day, a shit song is still a shit song. So it's you gotta be able to whistle that little bastard, you know, like
1: <laughs> so, so you mentioned you mentioned right at the start that you've written some shit songs. Yeah. So how do you... Well, obviously you don't know the difference when you're writing between an absolute classic that will mm. live on and there'll be three blokes playing in their garage on their shitty acoustic guitars <laughs> compared to a song that you, you don't think's any good. Like, is it luck? Is it skill?
0: Is it In terms of things that have become hits, for me, it's only ever really happened to me a few times and... Uh, it happened with "Pick You Up," which was the yep. first Powderfinger hit. That song happened in about fifteen minutes, half an hour. You, in the, you wrote it in half an hour in the in room nineteen of the Liner Motor Inn in Canberra, which is still there, apparently. <laughs> so it just flowed out. It just out she went. It just came out. I've, I'd put my guitar into a different tuning, into a new tuning that I'd never used before, and then this song kind of just appeared, just arrived, and That's- it was all. I mean the the bones, the skeleton of the song basically, yeah. and then I took it to the band and we played a sound check and we put it together and it was one of the fastest songs we ever put together actually. It just hmm. everything worked right away. So that and Wish You Well was another one that I was getting ready to go and record Tea and Sympathy and I had finished actually. I was like, oh, I've got, I've got the record. I was going in, you know, like a week or something like that I'd kind of put all the demos together and I had a, you know, whatever it was at the time, like a mini disc or something, probably.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're an old bastard, you are.
0: (laughs) It wasn't a cassette. Um, But, and I went out on the veranda and I drank, you know, a few beers and I was living by myself at the time. Um, I had a few beers and had a smoke to spliff and went to bed and I was like super happy. I was... This is, this is great, I'm ready. And then the next morning I woke up and I was pretty dusty and Wish You Well just appeared right then. And it, that was like 15 minutes. And I wrote it and I went downstairs and I recorded it and that had probably, I mean the demo, uh, and that had probably all happened within an hour and a half of me waking up. And
1: I just want to wish you well. So they're the crackers. I uh, answer this however you will. T- tell me a song that you've written that you've described to me as a shit song that you don't like.
0: Uh, well, most of Powderfinger's first record. Right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's just we were trying to do something that we probably weren't that great at at that time. Okay. But but the the thing to remember about all of that is it all leads you somewhere. You know. Yes, every, of course it does. Every song you write. Every shit song you write is on that road to writing a good one.
1: I couldn't agree more. Every cock up along the way gets you to the point where you hopefully achieve success. Like that—that's—that's that's life, isn't it?
0: It is. That's it's exactly right. And so that applies directly to to making music as well. You have to so, learn from your
1: mistakes. With um, T and Sympathy, two thousand and five, you go solo. I've written it down. Debuted at number one. Fifty eight weeks in the top. 50 wish you well, songbird, watch me over. Uh, huge success. You talked about um, singing for the first time after the soccer team lost. So you've got this band around you, you're killing it. Is it scary to go off on your own and think, are people going to like what I do by myself yeah. as well? Or it's just, it, I'm just going to go and do this.
0: Yeah. It was, I, I was, I was pretty, I mean, I was neither over or underconfident about it. I just, I think by then I was probably used to the fact that there would, it, would, it would at least be lent an ear, you know, people yeah. would, would pay attention to it. Um, but it was kind of a symptom of Powderfinger had been together since the early 90s. The most time we'd ever had off in until 2005 was three months. I think we took a three-month break at one stage we'd never had more sort of time away from each other or from the band and the music and the all-consuming nature of being in a band. And being a five-piece democracy, well, six-piece essentially because Paul, our manager, was part of it as well. Um, so we just were all a bit over it and we just needed a bit of a break from it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think 2001 or 2 I can't remember what year it was, JC always talks about this, we were at home for six weeks. So it was kind of like what the, the sports people do year in, year out actually. Um, hmm. But but we were on the road the rest of the time. So that kind of puts its strain on relationships and everything as well too, right? So we decided we'd have a break and everyone, everyone is at Cogs, Cogs the drummer, made a record. Darren made a record. Um, Hoggy and JC had a band called The Predators, which is still going. And, um, and then I made Teen Sympathy and it kind of just went nuts. And on the back of Wish You Well and Songbird. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was an amazing time. I, I was in a new relationship with my, my wife, Andrea. Um, I, I went to England to record that. Because everything in Powderfinger that had happened was the five or six of us, and plus our crew as well. We had the same crew for fifteen years or something, so it was just a big. I mean, I know it sounds like cliche, but it was a big family thing, you know. Um, and going and going off and doing something different just felt so fresh. And I went to Bath in England and made a record there. Made Teen Sympathy there at Real World, which is Peter Gabriel's studio. And then I went straight from there to Spain, <coughs> Spain, excuse me, to see Andrea for the first time since we'd met a year before but, and had been writing to each other for a year basically, but we hadn't seen each other. And I actually went to Lourdes, uh, sorry, went to, went to Spain, but with a plan to meet a mate of mine at Lourdes for the first test in case it wasn't working out. Uh, so I went <laughs> with to Andrea. I went to Lords, Uh but I went straight back because it was. How's your Spanish? Uh, it's pretty good. I've, Is I it? mean, I can. Yeah, I, I, I sort of ended up living there probably altogether for nearly four years. So, right, and no one in the family spoke English except for Andrea. So right, so your Spanish should be pretty handy then. Oh, no it's, it's certainly functional. I can. Okay, I can insult you're, you're- you. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to call me Ico de Puta, are you? Um, I may call you de You picked up a bit in Costa Rica, eh?
1: <laughs> Yeah. How's yours? Just, just just the basics. Where's the waves? How much? Yeah. What's right. for dinner?
0: Um, yeah.
1: It was actually good, that, the, the trip I've just been on now. Um, my kids are 13 and 11 and they started trying to order stuff. Um Unreal. Just a little bit here and there and, you know, knowing how to say goodnight to people and it's um, – yeah we're we're very isolated here aren't we as far as yeah you know you get to europe now you what language do you speak and you say oh, english and they're like yeah, which other three and you're like yeah probably can't help you there we're um we're a little ignorant in that area it'd be fair to say burn absolutely mate that's
0: that's that's gonna change in this country surely it has to yeah well, I and i mean so. just aside from the fact that of how good it is for your brain yes to have yeah. another language my kids are so lucky they're bilingual just purely by birth. And Andrea speaks Spanish to them still every day. So I hear Spanish a lot.
1: So uh, you've been so good with your time. So moving forward, what's, um, this is a broad question. What's musical nirvana for you now? Is it playing in front of 100,000 with a massive hit? Is it being on a tour around Australia? Is it sitting around the... Fire pit at home Playing guitar To your kids And
0: your wife Like what's Perfection now With music I'm I'm enjoying Playing live Much more Like I said Than I ever have Um This tour In particular Has been great Just the spirit Of the tour Paul Kelly Is the headliner And then Us Missy Higgins Vicar and Linda Mark Seymour And Troy Cassadaly And Ian Moss And they're just It's just a great Group of people together Who are all really Good artists as well Um and the spirit in the audience is fantastic. So I'm just loving that. But honestly, nothing tops for me just sitting in here in this room writing, coming up with an idea that didn't exist a few minutes ago. That's still, it's still the ultimate hmm. for me that that process of creation is just there's no describing the feeling either. It's just a it's a really unique feeling. It's a, um, well, wow, what a great way to spend your
1: day. And as I said, it's providing joy down the track to blokes sitting in garages or people that can relate it. I asked you about your three banging songs. Um, th- this is going to be harder for you, I reckon. You can watch three cricketers play <laughs> at their best.
0: Who are the three? Uh... Richard, Viv Richards, just because no one had done that before. Yeah. When he did that. Yeah. Shane Keith. Shane Keith. Yeah. And probably Gilly. Because yeah. you get he'll be, he'll, you get the all rounder there. That. He'll be happy to hear that too, because he, he he does listen. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, there you go, Gilly. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, because he was a he was an absolute weapon of a keeper as well, aside from obviously yeah. all he was batting. Um And played it in a great spirit, all of that stuff. Uh, But I'd make special mention of VVS Laxman. Ooh, the very, very special one. I saw him get 100 in a one-dayer at the Gabba and it's the best thing I've ever seen, the best batting (laughs) I've ever seen. And I think he hit a four off the last ball to get his ton and maybe win the game. I can't remember. We'll
2: find that. What a magnificent climax. Last ball of the innings. Four for 2.99. Laxman, 99, not out. Harvey to ball. Oh, I take that. That's well over the infield. One, two, three bounces and into the rope. And that's a brilliant hundred from BBS Laxman.
0: Yeah. He was, from, from that test that they won yep. after we declared. Yep. I hadn't paid that much attention to him until then, I reckon. It was him and Dravid, wasn't it? They batted all day, him and Dravid, yeah. Um, oh, but, mate, I could go for it. I right? know. With cricket. Is I that, know you could. This, we could you talk no. about
1: this, that this could go four hours if we talk about cricket. Uh, last question for you, um, and a question with weight and responsibility, especially for a father as you are. Um, advice for the young people listening that want to achieve success in their field as you have? Bernard, and you've provided so much joy as I, I hope I've um, touched on numerous times. Advice for the young and inquiring minds out there listening that want to achieve their success in their chosen field. What would you say from your experiences, mate?
0: Uh, I would say first, get a lawyer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I haven't heard that yep. <laughs> one, but well, that's going right to the top of the tree. <laughs>
0: uh, so you don't get ripped off. Um <laughs> No, I. I mean, it's pretty. It's pretty standard, but it really is about uh, meaning what you do. So having meaning in what you're doing. So whether you're a songwriter, or an author, a bank teller, or a an opening batsman, like having a reason to do it. Having having the having clear in your mind what, why you're doing it. Um, because if what you're doing is for fame, then that's a dangerous road. It works for some people, but it's not a very, um, common result for most people. Mm. Uh, but regardless of the result, if you've, if there's meaning in it, in what you're doing, it will always mean something to you. Um, and and it's, it's genuinely about hard work, no matter what you do, no matter how good someone is at what they do, Harry Styles, Billie Eilish, all of them, they have absolutely worked their asses off. And to take joy in the work rather than the kind of accolades or the results of the work is the, is the key, I reckon.
1: Great answer. Great podcast, great episode. I was just thinking then um, we've had the same song, which is a guy out of Jamaica um, that leads into this show that I recorded with him when I was over there doing a cricket tournament. Um, his name is Billy Mystic, and the song is Try, 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 and it's, it's people ask me all the time what it is, so that's what it is. So Google Billy Mystic if you ever sit in that recording studio and you think... I need a bit of inspiration. I'm going to write a intro for the Howie Games podcast. We are open and ready for you to send it through at any stage, Mr. Bernard Fanning. So if you get a little gap in your schedule and you feel inspired, I'm happy to give it a run right here.
0: Thank you, mate. Cheers.
1: Hey, mate, it's um, a privilege to chat with you. We could have spoke cricket for hours and hopefully we get to do that over a beer in person at some stage at a test match. But, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, as I said, I listened on the way out for an hour and a half and it, it took me back to all places. So, uh, on behalf of me, thanks for all the joy um, and and the brilliance of your songs, and thanks for coming on the podcast. You're a star, and I know people are going to love the episode. Thanks, Harry. So,
0: I could have
1: talked cricket with Bernard for at least three more hours and that probably would have only covered the West Indies of the early 1980s. What a thoughtful, engaging, cool caddy. Thanks to Bernard for giving up his time and coming on. He's not typically a man that does podcasts. Hope you loved the episode as much as I did and hopefully Bernard gets into the commentary box to call some ball-by-ball work this upcoming cricket season. Do not forget, next Tuesday on the Artist Series, the all-round star that is Ryan Fitzgerald, Fitzy. It will give you a lift. Guarantee from me to you, his episode will give you a lift. Until then, peace and love.